Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, the Book of Romans, chapter 10. Sometimes it is important to pause and just take in the panoramic view of the landscape that we have wandered by much too quickly. So as we all take a deep breath, it is my fervent hope that by now, in our study of the book of Romans, even if you haven't yet fully embraced the Hebraic heritage approach to understanding the Bible, that it has become clear that the more standard way that Romans has been taught over the centuries has a number of shortcomings. Sadly, it's not because the fine scholars who wrote these commentaries weren't sufficiently educated or because they intended to pass along incomplete or incorrect information. Instead, it is that some of them, sometimes I think without their realizing it, held a deeply ingrained anti-Jewish and anti-law worldview that was and it remains a, a fundamental belief and core doctrine of Western Christianity in general and it greatly colors not so much the details of their scripture research but rather it colors their conclusions thus most of what I have presented to you as Bible history and as a proper translation of the original Greek and, and, and Hebrew Bible manuscripts would in no way bother these scholars and commentators. But my conclusions would, of course, cause passionate disagreement because these conclusions necessarily confront church doctrines that they consider long ago decided, untouchable, and sacrosanct. It takes much courage and fortitude on the part of, of believers like you to be open to hearing God's word with some of the filters removed and thereby adding back in the natural Jewishness that was the inherent culture of the Bible. A, a Jewish culture that has been intentionally downplayed and filtered out in order to impress upon Christians that our faith is allegedly a thoroughly Gentile one. Now, because of our venture into the New Testament after spending so many valuable years in God's Old Testament, we have many new listeners and readers. So I want to reiterate just a couple of points so that no one misunderstands my intention or my goal for how and what I teach. Now for those who studied the Torah and other parts of the Old Testament with me, I just ask your patience as you are already well aware of what I'm about to say. Seed of Abraham Torah class insists on a Hebraic heritage approach or Jewish roots as you might prefer to call it. Approach to teaching the Bible because without it the all-important societal backdrop of the events it records, the mindset 
of the writers of the Bible who did the recording gets lost. And all the writers, except probably for Luke, were Hebrews. And after being myself, a rather garden variety evangelical Christian for the first four decades of my life, I became fully convicted that if one reads and believes the Bible as God's divine word to mankind, one cannot help but be led to a love of Israel. One cannot help but recognize God's limitless faithfulness and concern for them and then to embrace the Jewish people as our elder brothers and sisters in the faith. But also it's immensely helpful to finally comprehend that the Bible is a 100% Hebrew source document. But you know, when we finally accept that, then we have to wrestle with just what that means, especially for us who are Gentiles. Now because of that reality, and more, Israel and the Holy Scriptures cannot be separated. They are fully and permanently intertwined and they're dependent upon one another. Remove Israel from the Holy Scriptures and they're just gutted of their context and their humanity. Remove the Holy Scriptures from Israel and they're just another nation of people like all other nations. Gentiles, worshiping gods that don't exist, taking their cue from whatever despot might be leading them at the time. Yet God asks no Gentile to become a Jew, nor any Jew to become a Gentile in order to partake of his word, or of his covenants, and to worship him as the one true God. And so that is the position of this ministry. And while we spend much of our funds and our efforts and our time comforting and teaching and tangibly helping the people of Israel, and we spend a modest amount of time studying the Judaism of Yeshua's and Paul's day along with learning about all of its colorful traditions, by no means do we advocate Christians turning to Judaism or to living a modern day Jewish lifestyle in order to attain some hope for higher level of spiritual growth? That said, we have no issue with Judaism or Jewish lifestyle other than its blindness towards the advent of our Messiah. In fact, we have adopted some Jewish traditions that we find lovely, highly symbolic, meaningful, most appropriate for celebrating many of the biblical holy days in light of the coming of our Jewish Savior. So as we continue now in our study of Romans, keep this in mind. The reason that I teach somewhat different conclusions 
than, than most of the other Bible commentators is because we have dared to unearth the authentic Jewish ways and meanings and understandings and common everyday expressions of first century Jewish society. How they studied, how they worshipped in Christ's era. How all of this shaped what they meant by what they said. These ways and meanings both Yeshua and Paul would not only find familiar, but in fact they too operated mostly in the same way. Now I maintain that with such understanding perhaps we can be ambassadors of our Messiah who can help our brothers and sisters in the church to repent of its anti-Semitism and their insistence upon maintaining ancient traditions created by Gentile bishops. Traditions that the writers of the Bible in many cases taught against. Now I pray that even if you aren't certain that you can agree with what I just said, you would give me an opportunity to prove to you the merit of such an approach to God's Word. And the proof of it will be this. What I tell you will be backed up with the Holy Scriptures in context and it will glorify Yeshua as our Lord and Messiah. If I'm telling you the truth, it cannot help but do that. This is because as an honest, informed reading of Romans has already shown us, Christ and the law of Moses cannot be seen as anything but two closely related and connected entities. Paul insists that Christ is the goal, the essence, the underlying and the overarching substance of the law of Moses. We've heard him say it over and over. Why is this? Very simply, because Christ is the Word, the Logos. And while since the mid-third century, the Bible has been expanded, at least for Christians it has, to include the New Testament, prior to that time, no such thing existed. Only what we typically call the Old Testament. So, when Yeshua and the Apostles Paul and John and all the others referred to Messiah as the Word, the only entity they knew as God's Word was the Old Testament that included the Law of Moses. Listen to John. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing had been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. Jumping to verse 14. The Word became a human being and He lived with us. 
And we saw His glory and the glory of the Father's only Son full of grace and truth. And just to make clear His personal position on the continuing relevance of the law and the Old Testament prophets during His famous Sermon on the Mount Christ said this in Matthew 5.17-19 through 19. You've all heard this a hundred times in here if not more. Do not think I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to complete. Yes indeed I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away not so much as a uterus stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you with just the little tiniest bit of a devilish pride that as I have led tour groups to Israel, I have asked many unsuspecting pastors to read those words aloud while the tour group visited the Mount of Beatitudes. And I have watched as a deer in the headlights look come across their face. The pastors realized what they had just said. And it is as though being in that place somehow made it come alive made it real to them for the first time and it opened their ears to hear and comprehend something that they had never understood before for some of them it lifted a huge burden for others it caused them to be faced with a very painful choice stick with the purely man-made doctrine of the law is dead and gone for believers in order to satisfy their denominational leadership or believe what Christ plainly said at the very spot they were standing. Now, you can make that same choice exactly where you're sitting and I think you know what you ought to do. But will you? You know, I can assure you that if you're still wavering to believe Christ in this will lift a huge burden and set you off on a path to a much stronger and more beautiful relationship with Him and His Father than you ever imagined. Well, as we delved into Romans chapter 10 last week, we found ourselves submerged in deep but yet rather fundamental theology. First we learned that zeal for God does not equal or necessarily result in salvation. Rather such zeal must be based on correct understanding. And that correct understanding begins with accepting God's word as true and it culminates with acknowledgement that Yeshua is our Lord and Savior. If we can't do that, it's like revving your engine at a stoplight. 
It sounds impressive, but you're going nowhere. Next we learned that there are essentially two different kinds of righteousness. Both kinds are legitimate. Both kinds are to be present in us. One kind is the saving kind, and it is superior to the other kind. It is the kind of righteousness that is given to us as a free gift from God. It comes not by anything that we can physically do. It doesn't involve our human deeds or works. Rather, it comes from our trust in God's Son as Messiah. It's the kind, it's the only kind that gives redemption and eternal life. And it is based upon God's great mercy and His grace. Now the other kind of righteousness comes from our physically doing things, our behaviors that please God. That is, it indeed flows from our works and deeds. It comes from our being obedient to the law of Moses. It would not be incorrect to call it a self-righteousness, but self in a positive, not a negative sense. Now even so, this kind of righteousness, while it is good and pleasing to God, it does not save us. Because indeed it is something that we do. So it can't be pure enough. It can't be perfect enough. Or even achieve the proper requirement for us to be saved. We can't substitute one kind of righteousness for the other. And as believers, we cannot strive just for one kind or the other kind of righteousness. Our obedience and doing righteous deeds in God's eyes is the expected response for Him having given to us the gift of a saving righteousness. Well, after that, we found that in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47... Christ said something rather dramatic that can catch us a little off guard. It is so amazingly foundational, and yet it's equally amazingly overlooked. It is that we are incapable of believing Him fully because we can't possibly understand Him fully if we have not first believed Moses. What did Moses record for us to believe? The Torah and the law of Moses within its pages. For Jews, this meant that to properly believe Moses, which is just an expression that means the law of Moses, they must see that Messiah is the law's goal and aim. If they can't comprehend that, they will not be capable of believing Christ. And that is precisely what happened with the bulk of Jewish people. On the other hand, for Gentiles, it means that while we might think 
We can fully understand Yeshua by never venturing outside the Gospels in the New Testament. Christ says that's not possible. If you can't believe Moses, you can't believe him. And you can't begin to believe Moses if you refuse to even know what Moses said. As a personal witness, I can verify the truth of that. I have learned more about Christ. I have learned more about how to live a redeemed life that He gave us from knowing the Old Testament than I ever knew before I did. And I have heard the testimonies of countless believers who say the same thing. This is because the Torah and the law are the foundation for understanding the need for and the teaching of Messiah. The Torah, the law, and the prophets, they provide the prerequisite context for understanding what we read in the New Testament about Messiah. Without that, we may be self-assured that we understand what Yeshua and Paul and John and the others are telling us, but we don't. We can't. And with a far more elegant simplicity than I could ever construct, Christ said this exact thing in John 5, 46 and 47. He says, for if you really believed Moses, you would believe me because it was about me that he wrote. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how can you believe what I say? Believe it. Act upon it for your own good. And finally in our last lesson... Paul taught us that true belief must reside within us and yet it must be confirmed with what comes out of our mouths. So there must be a sincere inner belief accompanied by an equally sincere outer belief. The location of our inner belief is our heart, meaning actually our mind since the heart organ in that day was thought to be where our intellect resided. The location of our outer belief is our mouth. And from our mouth we profess our inner belief to others. But listen again to what Paul said about what happens when we profess with our mouths. In Romans 10.10 While with the mouth one keeps on making public acknowledgement and thus continues towards deliverance. For Paul, this outward verbal expression of our faith was not an option. Or as I hear often today from Christians, that when it comes to salvation, there are biblical commands that are non-essential. So why do them? Confession with our mouths that Yeshua is Lord is not a non-essential. But there is something else as well. There is something powerful about 
speech and the spoken word. A passionate speech can move a nation to better things. Or a passionate speech can move people to war. A well-spoken word can transmit light into the dark recesses of people's minds. God spoke the universe into existence. So never underestimate the power of the spoken word. The idea that our faith is so private and personal that we have no obligation to speak it to others is a false notion. For Paul, if you will not confess your faith publicly, you are not the Lord's. And if you won't confess it publicly, you are not fulfilling your calling as one of God's elect to tell others about the good news that saved you. Let's continue on with Romans chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 1413. Starting at verse 9. If you acknowledge publicly with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be delivered. For with the heart one goes on trusting and thus continues towards righteousness, while with the mouth one keeps on making public acknowledgement and thus continues towards deliverance. For the passage quoted says that everyone who rests his trust on him will not be humiliated. That means there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Adonai is the same for everyone, rich towards everyone who calls on him, since everyone who calls on the name of Adonai will be delivered. But how can they call on someone if they haven't trusted in him? How can they trust in someone if they haven't heard about him? How can they hear about someone if no one's proclaiming him? And how can people proclaim him unless God sends them? As the Tanakh puts it, how beautiful are the feet of those announcing good news about good things. The problem is that they haven't all paid attention to the good news and abated. For Isaiah says, Adonai who has trusted what he has heard from us. So trust comes from what is heard. What is heard comes through a word proclaimed about the Messiah. But I say, isn't it rather that they didn't hear? No, they did hear. Their voice has gone out throughout the whole world and their words to the end of the earth. But I say, isn't it rather that Israel didn't understand? I will provoke you to jealousy over a non-nation, over a nation void of understanding. I'll make you angry. Moreover, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I became known to those who didn't ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I held out my hands to a people who kept disobeying and contradicting. Let's spend some time with yet another theological principle that Paul presents us with that on the surface sure sounds straightforward enough, but actually it's not at all. It is complex, 
but it's also worth the time to explore it because there is more to it than meets the eye. In verse 9, Paul says that in order to be saved, we have to acknowledge that Yeshua is Lord. Simple enough. But what does it mean to Paul that Yeshua is Lord? Is Yeshua his master? Is Yeshua his boss and activity director? In Greek, the word that's being translated as Lord is kurios. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Adonai. In its simplest sense, it does mean master. Kurios, Adonai, master, and Lord are all equivalent words. Your master, your Lord, is someone who holds the power of deciding over you. It is also a generic term of honor and respect. And of itself, it has no connection to religion or to deity. However, for Paul, it meant something special. But what? This has been a debate within Christianity for hundreds of years. What I want to do, rather than giving you the several alternatives, which could take a very long time, is to get to the bottom line, which itself isn't a short discussion. It is this. In the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew word for what Gentiles call the Old Testament, God's formal name, which is formed by the Hebrew letters yud heh vav and which I pronounce, Yehovah, but is more widely pronounced as Yahweh, this series of letters is used over 6,000 times in the original Hebrew text. 6,000. And yet, that's not actually how our English Bibles read. The English equivalent or translation of yud vav is Jehovah. Now you've all heard that. Jehovah. And at best, you'll find Jehovah, the word Jehovah, in an English Old Testament a handful of times. A few dozen at most. Rather, because of a Jewish superstition against saying God's name out loud or even writing it, that began around 300 BC, Jews started saying Hashem, which means the name, or Eloah, which means God, or Adonai, which means Lord, or a couple of other Hebrew words, in place of saying His formal name. In Hebrew Bible study, when you're dealing with scripture passages, there is a technique called ketiv and keri. Now, ketiv means what is written, and keri means what is read. That is, the ketiv of a Hebrew word is just to pronounce it just like it's written in the original scriptures. But the keri is to move around some of the letters for the original word or even to substitute a different word altogether for what is written in the original scriptures rather than pronouncing it as written. 
So whenever Jews come to the letters Yud Hey Vav Hey in the Bible, that's God's formal name, they do not use the Kathiv, which would be just to pronounce it as Yehovah or Yahweh, just like it's written. Instead, when Jews see those four Hebrew letters, they pronounce the words Hashem, Eloah, Adonai, or something else. It is not that any of those is an alternative way to pronounce Yudevave. They represent authorized substitutes, man-made substitutes, of course. Thus, while Hebrew speakers know this, and they follow this principle, non-Hebrew speakers or novices don't. So, in most English Bible translations, what we see is that the Bible translator more or less follows the Hebrew carry and uses a substitute word when he translates God's formal name. That means that when we look in our Old Testaments and when referring to God's name we will see the Lord said this, God did that. 99% of the time the original text, though, is using God's formal name, Yehovah, the letters yud heh The Greek translation of the Bible does the same thing. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is called the Septuagint. It was created 250 years before Christ was born. What the Septuagint does is to, then is to substitute the Greek word kurios, every time God's formal name appears in the scriptures. And while the Hebrews did not disturb the scriptures themselves and instead just left God's formal name intact right where it was found in the original, often they wrote the preferred carry word, Hashem, Adonai, whatever, in the margins of the page or on the scroll. Thereby telling the reader what word he should use instead. However, in the Greek Septuagint, that took a different approach. The Septuagint went ahead and just removed God's formal name from the scriptures and substituted instead the word kurios, Lord. So when reading the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the word Lord, kurios, is used over 6,000 times when referring to God. Now often we can tell by Paul's scripture quotes when he is quoting the Hebrew Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament versus when he's quoting the Greek Septuagint and at times when he's just paraphrasing because of differences in how those passages were transmitted over time in the Septuagint versus the Tanakh. And so the evidence is this. Paul uses the term Jesus is Lord. When he does that, he means Lord in the same sense as it's used 6,000 times in the Septuagint. He is equating, when he uses that term, Yeshua to God. So the evidence is that Paul, as did most Diaspora Jews, 
used the Greek Septuagint as his personal Bible rather than the Hebrew Tanakh. Thus, when Paul says to confess that Yeshua is Lord, is Kurios, he means Lord in the sense of how it is mostly used in the Septuagint as a substitute for the formal name of God. And yet, told you it gets complicated. Clearly, Paul differentiates Yeshua from God the Father. That is, Paul does not see Yeshua as God the Father. To use C.E.B. Cranfield's definition, Paul intends to communicate that Jesus is Lord means that Yeshua shares the name and the nature, holiness, authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God. It is Paul's way of emphasizing the divine essence of Yeshua. This is important. This is important. See, because the Hebrew term Messiah, Mashiach, which just means Christ or Savior in English, in no way indicates a divine nature. Messiah is in the Second Temple period both a person and a function. It is the one who is anointed by God to rescue Israel from her oppressors and to restore Israel's fortunes. So in the Jewish mindset, Paul's mindset, saying that Yeshua is Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, merely means he is the deliverer of Israel, but only in a physical and a political way. Not as a superhuman, not as deity, not as God, but rather as just a highly effective human warrior leader. To be clear, Jesus is Lord versus Jesus is Messiah is two entirely different things. Paul sees Yeshua as both of them. By Paul adding the attribute that Jesus is Lord to the equation means that on the one hand, Yeshua is the human being that leads Israel out of its physical and political oppression to Rome. But on the other hand, it also means that he is divine. And he bears the substance and authority of the God of Israel. Paul's meaning was well understood within Jewish circles. So, Jesus is Lord is not a throwaway. It's not an extra high degree term of respect for him. It is a critical theological assertion about who Yeshua is and about what his purpose is. He is divine. He is of essentially the same substance as Jehovah, God the Father, and he has also come to deliver his people. Now for most but not all forms of Christianity, this concept of who Christ is is taken for granted. This, this concept that I just explained to you. But for Judaism in Paul's day, such a possibility was very controversial. 
However, the idea that the Messiah of Israel could be both human and divine, something that modern Jews say is idolatry, was accepted. It was accepted by a significant segment of mainstream Judaism in Paul's day. So he wasn't alone in this belief, and he didn't invent the idea. What kept Paul in hot water with the Jewish community was his constantly rubbing elbows with Gentiles. And even offering them the benefits of the Jewish Messiah. Without them converting and becoming Jews. That was why Paul was always in trouble. Now this belief of Paul's that both Jews and Gentiles could equally benefit from Yeshua's position as Lord and Savior is expressed in verse 12 when he says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile that everyone who calls on him will be delivered will be saved most of that verse is a quote from the book of Joel we find in Joel chapter 3 these words Joel 3 5 at that time whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved for in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be those who escape as Adonai has promised among the survivors will be those whom Adonai has called now don't let something slip past you here with that verse see notice the context of this Old Testament statement it concerns a time when Jerusalem is under siege and a great conflict is underway that precedes the dreaded day of the Lord. It equates to what Christians call Armageddon. Now while Joel on the surface applies this to Israel, Paul says it means that, but it also means something deeper. So using the rabbinical drash method, we talked about this a few weeks ago, using the rabbinical drash method of Bible interpretation, Paul says it applies not only to Israel, but also to all human beings. All human beings, Jew or Gentile, who call on the name of God will be saved from this great conflict. Now remember what we have learned. For Paul, this this apocalypse he's describing is imminent. It could happen tomorrow for Paul. He was expecting it. In fact, he certainly expected it before his lifespan ended, which no doubt is why he chose this particular scripture reference, Joel 3.5, to make his point. However, the larger point was that Gentiles were perfectly capable of trusting just as much as were Jews. And thus Gentiles are perfectly capable of receiving God's mercy and grace, as is Israel, and being saved. Well then Paul sets up next a series, a fascinating series really, of four questions that act like consecutive links in a chain. Before we discuss them, we have to ask the question, who is Paul addressing this to? That is, when verse 14 begins, but how can 
they call on someone if they haven't trusted in him who is they? they who? so is they the Jews that Paul has been primarily talking to since chapter 7 or has he switched and now he's addressing Gentiles or is they just general and he's addressing Jews and Gentiles now a fair argument can be made for any of these viewpoints so Paul has made himself quite unclear to those of us who live hundreds of years after his time just exactly who he's talking to however he wasn't thinking about a hundred years into the future let alone two thousand he was addressing people in a letter to Rome he was dealing with specific issues that existed in his day in the context of current events therefore I think it's most reasonable to see him as continuing to aim this primarily at the Jewish members of the Roman congregation. Well then Paul returns to the typical rabbinical method of creating a straw man to debate his point. And these four questions are brought by Paul's straw man to try to show that Israel cannot be saved by Messiah due to their lack of faithfulness to God. And Paul is going to refute each question more or less one by one. What the straw man wants to prove, however, is that it isn't really Israel's fault that they aren't recognizing Yeshua as their Messiah and thus are not calling on his name because they didn't have a fair opportunity to do so for several reasons. Paul pushes back by saying that Israel has had all the opportunity needed along with all the advantages attendant to being God's chosen people to hear that message to be saved but they wouldn't do it even so fault and blame are beside the point God is so perfectly faithful that he is merely following through with his promise to save Israel despite their hardened hearts their deaf ears their rebellion and that's what Yeshua's purpose is each of the straw man's questions basically says that in order for Israel to call upon Christ to be saved four things needed to happen first then he implies that these four things never happened first says the straw man it is self-evident that Israel could only have called on the name of Messiah if they had already believed in him as Messiah. But second, they could only have believed in him as Messiah if they had first had the opportunity to know about him. And third, how could they have known about him if no one was sent to tell them about him? And fourth, since this message of deliverance was from God how could there be someone sent to Messiah if God himself didn't appoint a special person for the task and give him the message, the means and the authority to deliver it the straw man even draws upon scripture to make his case that somebody had to deliver the good news or nobody would know about it no doubt this passage also makes a strong case 
that the only people who are authorized to carry the message about God, uh, from God rather, about the good news, the gospel, are those whom God has called. Who has God called? As Paul said in a few chapters earlier, seed of Abraham. That's who he is called. And who are seed of Abraham? Believers in the Messiah Yeshua. Jew and Gentile. Folks, it's us. It's us that he's referring to. We have been commissioned by God through the means of our own salvation to tell those who are waiting for someone to bring the good news to them. It's us. Next time we'll see how Paul responded to each of these questions from his straw man opponent.